0: Exodus one, verse one to 22. This is the word of the Lord. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous, so the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And, if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of works in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live.
1: We live in a world that makes endless promises. Think about the advertising industry. If you use this deodorant, you won't be able to keep the girls away. Promise that's made. Think about the promises that our politicians make. Load shedding will be resolved in 6 to 12 months. You are right. Or think about the promises that we make to one another in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, to love and to care for till death parts us, forsaking all others. It's not hard to see why we are cynical about promises, for they seem more often than not, don't they, to be hollow and seldom kept. But, you know, if you are given a promise by somebody that can be trusted to deliver on the promise, that's a different matter. But it causes trouble in our lives because promises are difficult to live with. It creates tension in us. The problem with a genuine, trustworthy promise is that it requires patience from us. A promise, if it is true... And if the promise maker can be trusted, assures you of something that lies in the future, but it doesn't actually give it to you today. And that causes tension. But if the promise that you received can be relied on, then it's as good as yours. If it's a trustworthy promise, even if you don't have it yet, think of engagement. Engagement is a promise that you're making to another person. I'm going to marry you. That's a promise that can be trusted in most cases. We saw it come to fulfillment yesterday with Stu and Grace, and what a wonderful fulfillment of the promise of engagement that was. Or think of when you were young, the promise of Christmas morning and all of the good things under the tree. And you had to live with that promise on Christmas Eve, didn't you? It was difficult to live with. You wanted to get it sooner than it was promised. It caused tension in your life. Not that you would prefer to live without the promise, mind you. You want the promise, but it can be agony waiting for something that has been promised. Now, the Bible speaks in those terms about being a Christian. The Christian is somebody that has been given certain promises by somebody who can be trusted. And it can be agony to wait for those promises to be fulfilled. Not that we don't want the promises. We don't want to get rid of the tension. We're happy to live with the tension because we want the promises. And we know that we'll get the promise and that the promise will be fulfilled. But it's difficult to live with. I want to ask you tonight, if you're a Christian, are you confident in the promises of God in the gospel? How are you going with believing that promise? Do you believe that if you have trusted in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are actually really forgiven? Do you really believe that? That there's nothing that you can do to lose God's love? For there was nothing that you did to gain his love in the first place. Do you believe that promise that you are loved by God? Do you believe the promises of Jesus that he is with you, even though you can't feel him or see him, but he's made the promise. He is a trustworthy promise maker, and that's what we've got to hold on to as we make our way through the wilderness as God's people. And so in a world full of uncertainty and upheaval, in a world full of lies and corruption, there is a rock, there is a safe place There is a fixed point. It is the promise-making Lord who can be trusted. He will make good on what he has promised. You can put your full weight on him. I want you to see three things from the passage tonight. The first is God's promises are on track. I wonder if you were scratching your head while Elmerie was reading the first seven verses, wondering why we needed a whole long list of names in the first seven verses. You know, at first reading of this passage, you can actually miss God altogether. God doesn't seem to, he doesn't act, he doesn't speak in this passage. He seems to be absent without leave. You can get the impression from reading Exodus chapter 1 that God is nowhere to be seen, sitting on his hands. In fact, it has been 400 years for the Israelites since God had anything to say to them. Four centuries, God had gone silent on the Israelites. And his people, who centuries earlier, God had made incredible promises to, in Exodus chapter 1, they seem abandoned, forsaken, and hopeless. And do you know, sometimes we can feel like that. Perhaps somebody here tonight feels abandoned by God. Maybe you prayed your guts out for something and you never got it. Maybe you long for something, something good, but God withheld it from you. You feel abandoned. I've met many people who have turned their backs on God because they feel like the Israelites must have felt in Exodus chapter 1 that God had turned his back on them. But why do we have these first seven verses? It's just a list of names of Jacob's 12 sons. But it's a very, very important paragraph. For what it does is it places the book of Exodus for us. And it reminds us that the book of Genesis is the backdrop and the context to the book of Exodus. Exodus is rightly understood as the sequel to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 49, the penultimate chapter of Genesis... Uh, the writer talks about Jacob's death and lists all the names of his sons. And here in chapter 1 of Exodus, in verse 7, the same thing, the first seven verses, the same thing, so that we know we meant to link these two. We know that they are sequels of each other. There are two specific events in the book of Genesis that we need to remember if we're going to understand the book of Exodus. The first event is that the world was created by God's word in the book of Genesis. Do you remember that? Genesis chapter 1, maybe some of the best known verses in the Bible. God said, let there be light, and there was light. His word is unopposed. His word is powerful. His word is sovereign. He's shown as the great sovereign creator and therefore the owner of the whole world. In Genesis, such an important uh, point to to get in order to have a Christian worldview. You know, the Babylonians who lived near the Israelites they had a different view of how the world was created. Their view was that there was a great whale that was swimming around one day, and it vomited up the earth and everything on it. But you know, the writer of Genesis says, "Stop worshiping the whale. Are you stupid?" Worship the one who made the whale. The great God, the true and living God. The God who made the heavens and the earth. Don't worship created things. Worship the creator. Who is also your owner, whether you acknowledge that or not. For if he made you, he owns you. And he can do what he likes with you. And so, God created the world by speaking what an extraordinary thing that is that in the very the very first chapter of the bible the first time we encounter the great true and living god we see that he is a god who speaks and whose word is powerful and unopposed and that's an important theme that is pulled throughout the book of exodus god is not like you god is not like pharaoh God is different and other to anything that he has created. He stands above his creation in sovereign control over it and in ownership of it. Look at this verse that will be on the screen, Exodus chapter 9, verse 14 and following. This time I will send the full force of my plagues, God says to Pharaoh through Moses, against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know there is no one like me in all the earth. I am utterly unique. I am who I am. Exodus chapter 3, verse 15. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this purpose, Pharaoh, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. It is time for us to realize that God's greatest concern is his own name. You are not his greatest concern. His name is his greatest concern. For he is the great God who stands above all. He is concerned for you, but not primarily. He's concerned for his name. And let me explain to you, I know there's objections to that. Doesn't that mean he's a narcissist? Well, when, it's, when, when you encounter that in a human being, the answer is they are a narcissist or worse because they are putting themselves in the place of God who is the only person who is allowed to centralize himself. And do you know, furthermore, that everything that is wrong with this world is because God has been decentralized? Everything that is wrong in your life, everything that has hurt you in your life, everything that is dark and evil and sinful in your life is because God has been pushed to the periphery either by you or somebody else. The answer to the world's ailments and the answer to your life is that God's name be centralized again, which is why we prayed earlier, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That is the first concern in the Lord's prayer is his name, for that is God's first concern. And so by his word, he made the world. The second great theme in the book of Genesis is that God enters into a relationship with people. And as theologians put it, he cut a covenant. Not only did he create the world by his word, but he made a covenant. He cut a covenant by his word as well. He speaks a word of creation and his word is true and trustworthy and is immediately fulfilled. And then he speaks a word of promise and his word is true and trustworthy and not immediately fulfilled. But do you think you can trust that it will be? There's, there's overwhelming evidence that it will be because of the fact that he created with his word. And so there's no reason to think that his promises will fall to the ground God entered into a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, uh, hundreds of years before Exodus chapter 1. He promised, as many of you know, three things to Abraham in this order, land, descendants, and blessing. Those are the three promises. By the end of the book of Genesis, God has begun to fulfill his promise. The book ends in chapter 46 of Genesis in verse 27 on the screen which says, with the two sons who had been born to Joseph in Egypt, the members of Jacob's family which went to Egypt were 70 in all. Come back to Exodus chapter 1 and verse 7. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. They increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was full of them. Can you see that God's promise of descendants has started to take place. Mind you, the obstacles for God to keep his promises in Genesis were enormous. Abraham's wife was 80 years old and infertile. She had never given birth when God made the promise to Abraham and his wife that they will have many descendants. they were in there. Can you imagine Abraham at the father's race at school with the Zuma it's an extraordinary age to start having children, isn't it, in your 80s? Not only that, but the son that God did give them, Isaac, he marries Rebecca, and guess what? Rebecca is infertile. How is God going to keep his promise? God overcame. In the days before fertility treatment and Western medicine, God did miracle and overcame. And then one of Isaac and Rebecca's uh, children, Jacob, he gets married to Rachel. And guess what? She also is infertile. There are huge obstacles for God to keep his promises. And yet by the end of the book of Genesis, his promises are beginning to be fulfilled. Can you trust him? Do you think he's good for the rest? And so creation and covenant are the two themes in Genesis that are pulled into the book of Exodus. And you can actually see it in verse 7, both of those themes side by side. The Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly. Do you remember what God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1? Be fruitful and multiply. Creation. And they increased in numbers and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Covenant, promise. I will give you descendants. The number is growing. God is faithful and trustworthy. He can keep his promises. God is not like other gods, friends. God is not like other promise makers. He's not like our politicians. Thank God that He's not. He's not like the advertisers. He's not like those of us who make promises to one another. He is faithful and can be trusted. Will you trust him this year? Will you put your full weight on him? Will you believe the promises? Even though it feels from where we are standing like it's taking a long time for all of those promises to be fulfilled. But what an amazing thing that the God of the book of Exodus is a God who is transcendent, that means he stands above all that he has created, but he is also personal. He makes promises to individuals like Abraham and like you and me. What an amazing God. The God of the Quran is not like that. The God of the Quran is only transcendent, no one has any access to him. For he is not the true and living God. The true and living God is both transcendent and accessible, much better, and even makes promises to people like us. Second heading tonight, God's promises are threatened, verses 8 to 22. It's easy for us to skip over verse 8 and to not recognize the significance of it, but have a look at it with me. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. It is an absolute national disaster, verse 8. A new king had arisen in Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. Now, that is a disaster because the previous king, his predecessor, didn't only know Joseph, but loved and trusted Joseph and welcomed Joseph and his family and the other people from Canaan who came with his family. But this king doesn't know about Joseph, doesn't care about Joseph. All he is worried about is the amount of descendants that Joseph seems to have. They are exceedingly fruitful and increase in number and become so numerous that the land was crawling with the Josephites, the Israelites. Now, they were worried about this. I'll tell you why. There's a very good reason why this new pharaoh was worried. This pharaoh came from, he was not actually a a natural-born Egyptian, this new pharaoh. He had come also from the land of Canaan. Uh, His ancestors had come into Egypt, and they also had grown large and multiplied and increased in number, and eventually from the inside took over the country from the true Egyptians. So can you see why he might be a little bit sensitive about the Israelites who also come from Canaan and are growing large? You can understand his concern, can't you? The social growth of Israel had them worried, for they also had come from Canaan and were doing so well in the land of Egypt. Do you remember the story of Joseph? He was a sold into slavery, and he goes to work for Mr. and Mrs. Potiphar, and one day Mrs. Potiphar tries to seduce him, and when he resists her wiles and runs away, which, by the way, is the best way to handle sexual temptation, run like hell, and that's what Joseph did, and she was so embarrassed that she accused him of rape, and Mr. Potiphar believed her And Joseph lands up in jail. But after a few years, God is not absent. He's at work behind the scenes. And Joseph rises to become the prime minister, the second most powerful man in the known world, second only to Pharaoh. But what is happening in Exodus chapter 1, the entire reversal of that? At the end of the book of Genesis, Joseph is in jail and and he becomes great in the land of Egypt. Now, the Israelites, who are great in the land of Egypt, are being herded into prison camps and into labor camps. They're going back into captivity. The previous pharaoh welcomed Joseph and his family. The land was open to them, and they prospered. They were actually a blessing to the nation of Egypt. But this new king did not know Joseph or the stories about Joseph. They fell out of memory, and now Israel are a threat. It's interesting, God's people are always persecuted. I wonder if you know this, that 70% of all religious persecution that happens in the world today is against Christians. Did you know that? It seems so far removed from where we live, doesn't it? There are other people that are persecuted today as well, but Christians are 70% of the persecuted. God's people, it is unusual for God's people to not be persecuted. Are you ready? It looks like the clouds are gathering in the west. It's abnormal for us to not be persecuted. It's not going to last. Right from back in the day, God's people are always persecuted. And so in verse 9, he decides to oppress Israel, and he engages in population control for political survival. And so the systematic oppression of Israel begins, and Pharaoh employs three methods of population control. Firstly, in verse 11, Israel are herded into labor camps, and they are enslaved. It would have been an enormous labor force. Oh, they're not building the pyramids That's the Prince of Egypt on Disney Channel. Um, They were building cities called Pithom and Ramesses. His second uh, method is that in verse 15, he instructs the midwives to commit infanticide, ethnic cleansing. It's genocide that he wants them to engage in. Only the boys, by the way, so that they can't grow up to form an army and go to war against the pharaoh. That doesn't work, which we'll see in a moment. And so he employs a third method where he now instructs the whole population in verse 22. Then pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. The people of Egypt are instructed to kill any Israelite infant boy by casting them into the Nile. Can you imagine living in that society? Imagine if you were a Jewish woman who had just given birth, and it's a boy, and you're in hiding. I mean, this is something out of A Quiet Place, isn't it? Have you seen A Quiet Place, the movie? Worth seeing if you haven't seen it, where these monsters that are... Are attracted to sound, and a woman has to give birth without crying out if she wants to survive. It's a bit like that, except worse. It's it's really the sum of all fears. Imagine how they must have felt hiding with their children, hoping that they're not going to make a noise or cry out, trying to keep quiet, hoping that they won't be discovered. What a terrifying way for a child to start his life. Can you see the question? Where is God? These are His people. We're in trouble. Do you really know what's going on? Have you forgotten us? Can you see what we are having to put up with here? Do you have amnesia? Can you be trusted? Do you remember your promises? Why aren't you fulfilling them? Can you be trusted? God is silent while his people are suffering. I'm glad we don't have to end there because that's a pretty low place to end. Third heading God's faithfulness glimpsed. God cannot be thwarted. That is, he cannot be stopped. His plans are his plans. And when he says he's going to do something, it will be done. He has shown that throughout the book of Genesis. We don't need to lose our grip on that now in Exodus. And so instead of God being thwarted, Pharaoh is thwarted in this chapter. Three times Pharaoh tries to limit Israel's population growth, and three times those plans of fail and are interrupted. The forced labor in verse 11 leads to verse 14. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar, with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Sorry, have a look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Pharaoh tries to oppress them, and there's a population explosion. Secondly, the infanticide commanded to the midwives in verse 15 and 16. What does that result in? Well, actually, these two ladies defy their king. They refuse to engage in abortion and infanticide. They recognize that God has got a higher authority than their own king. That's something that believers have always also had to remember. That there is a time to enter into civil disobedience. The Bible's view is that we try to obey our authorities as far as we can, but if they command something that God forbids, or if they forbid something that God commands, we enter into civil disobedience and we take what comes. And so the Pharaoh is overcome by these two ladies the great, powerful pharaoh, beaten by a couple of girls. And then thirdly, and this we only know because we, we can see it with hindsight. We haven't got there yet in the story. But the drowning of the babies in the Nile in verse 22, you know, the Nile was the lifeline of Egypt. It was their water source. It was irrigation. It was transport. The Nile was the basis of Egypt's economy. The Nile is the life-giver in Egypt yet the babies are to be thrown into the Nile. The Nile is an agent of destruction. But do you remember the rest of the story? In poetic justice God will turn the Nile into blood and make it entirely useless to the nation of Israel of Egypt, reminding them that actually God is the life-giver in Egypt, not the Nile. And not only that, he will use water from the Red Sea, not from the Nile, to beat Pharaoh decisively once and for all after the Red Sea crossing when the water closed in on Pharaoh's whole army. What Pharaoh uses to kill his enemies, water will eventually bring down his whole empire and kill his army. Can you see the hand of God is at work? As the plans of an evil king are subordinated to the righteous, wonderful plans of the king of kings, the creator, the one who makes promises and keeps them. Well, let me conclude. What is God saying to us tonight in Exodus chapter one? Well, I think there are lots of things that you can draw from it, but let me mention one or two things. Number one: if you are God's part of God's people, your future does not depend on what you can see. Can we can we learn that lesson? Our future does not depend on what we can see. Our future does not depend on our potential. Your whole high school career, you were told in LO that you have the potential to become whatever you want to become. You can be whatever you want to be. There's nothing, if you put your mind to it, that you cannot achieve. Your future does not depend on you or your potential or your putting your mind to it. Your future depends on God. Your future does not depend on the circumstances that you find yourself in. God is above every circumstance and can overcome every obstacle. Your future is dependent upon God keeping his promise. And you know, the promise that God has himself made to us is not the Abrahamic promise, although that is still operational in our day and it does apply to us, but it's come to its fulfillment in the death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is a promise. It's a promise of real forgiveness and friendship with God. Imagine yourself a disciple on the day of the cross. You've given up three years of your life. You've walked away from business opportunities, from family, from career furtherment. You've followed Jesus You've come to believe that he is the king of kings and the Christ. You've come to believe that he is the one who ushers in the great kingdom of God. And now you are standing before him and he's hanging on a cross, defeated, helpless, impotent. I wonder if you can trust God as you look at the defeated Christ. Would have been a very hard thing to do on Good Friday, wouldn't it? But what about Easter Sunday? Wow. There would have been no doubt in your mind that you can trust this promise maker. For he overcame death as he said he would. He dealt with sin as he said he would. He opened a way for friendship with God as he said he would. He ushered in a new kingdom as he said he would. And so, as we look at Jesus on the cross, it looks like defeat. It looks like a failed promise. But in fact, the promise is being kept by him being on the cross and by him staying on the cross so that your sin can be removed from you and God's anger can be satisfied. Have you believed that promise? I know that many of you have, but it might be that some haven't who are here tonight. Will you believe the promise that if you put your trust in the crucified and the risen Jesus, that you really are forgiven and acceptable to God and that God delights in you no matter what you've done and no matter what has been done to you? That's a promise you can stake your life on. How striking That Pharaoh gave the order to have the sons of his enemies murdered. But God gave the order for his own son to be killed. Not to harm his enemies. But to save them. Different category. Different planet. What a God. Will you trust him? This year... Let's keep believing the promises of God. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son that he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins.